Hey everyone, I'm Drew Ray, and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This is episode 31, which I've called Unsafe Safety. The episode is about how attempts to make things safer can backfire. In particular, we're going to have a look at the work of two people, Edward Tenner and Lisanne Bainbridge. Both of them have done work that speaks to a frequent concern I have about the habits of safety practitioners. If you pay attention to online fora like the LinkedIn interest groups, you'll run into a whole heap of safety people talking about how important safety is. They seem to think that safety would be easy if only people paid attention, and the only reason things become unsafe is that senior management just doesn't care enough. Now, I don't mean to imply that this view is by any means universal, but it's disturbingly common, and at times it drowns out the saner voices. Even the most nuanced, balanced discussion of tricky issues gets followed up by a torrent of platitudes and slogans that swamps the original concerns. If this was just the same online idiocy that you get below the line on The Guardian's comment is free, or on the dodgier parts of Reddit, I wouldn't be so concerned. But I'm pretty sure it's a spillover from a lot of real-life safety thinking. Safety is not common sense, and it's not rocket science. Rocket science is just applied chemistry and orbital mechanics with some cool instrumentation and software for flavour. Safety is genuinely hard, and sloganeering without thinking gets people killed. Let me explain. Modern systems are complicated to start with. A Boeing 747 contains literally millions of parts. A high-end automobile contains a hundred million lines of software. A simple railway interlocking system contains more combinations of states than can be tested in the life of the universe. The humans that design, operate, and otherwise interact with these systems are vastly more complicated still. When we try to make things safer, we're taking systems produced and refined by multiple teams of highly competent people and saying, I can make that better. There's no reason why we shouldn't try to do it, and many reasons why we should, but there's a large possibility that when we think we have a better way of doing things, we could just be plain wrong. And yet we have safety officers with decades of experience who think that a trite slogan is a suitable response to a serious intellectual question. We have academics who think that anyone in industry who ignores their own particular way of doing things is stupid and irresponsible. Really, I'm ranting here at anyone of any background who starts a comment or discussion with the words, it really just all comes down to... Edward Tenner wrote a book in 1997 called Why Things Bite Back, Technology and the Revenge of Unintended Consequences. It's a detailed discussion of a phenomenon called revenge effects, and I highly recommend reading the whole thing. A revenge effect is when you try to fix something, but instead make it worse. As Tenor points out, quote, a revenge effect is not the same thing as a side effect. If a cancer chemotherapy treatment causes baldness, that's not a revenge effect. But if, indu if it induces another, equally lethal cancer, that's a revenge effect." End quote. In safety, 
One common revenge effect comes from the process of intensification. By trying to suppress small problems, we create a reservoir of danger waiting to burst out. A simple example of this, supplied by a DisasterCast listener, is a laboratory which introduced a rule that no container was to be left open when not in use, particularly not overnight. This managed the low consequence but frequent hazard of small spills and vapour releases. Unfortunately, some of those liquids were generating gas, and sealing them led to the much more dramatic consequence of exploding containers. Another type of revenge effect is called a recomplicating effect. We start by trying to make things easier, but they just get harder and harder. A common example in safety is providing information. Modern sensors and information electronics make it very easy to provide users with all sorts of data at the touch of a button. However, the ease of providing information often means that we provide too much of it. We transform the old problem of not getting any information into a new problem of finding the right information buried amidst a pile of distractions. A third problem is rearrangement. We think we're taking a problem away, but really we're just putting it somewhere else. An aircraft designer is worried about leaks draining the hydraulic control system, so they introduce isolation valves. Except that inadvertent operation of the valves will cut off the controls far more effectively than any minor leak. This happens often with circuit breakers too. A device designed to protect equipment which itself is capable of disabling the equipment if it malfunctions. Rearranging effects really start to bite when you try to eliminate single points of failure in a system. A single point of failure is where one malfunction, all by itself, is enough to make the system dangerous. A common response that people have is to introduce redundancy, to put in a backup component so that two things need to go wrong. But how do you know when you need to switch to the backup? You need some sort of voting device or cutover switch, which creates a new single point of failure. Now there are actually cost and safety advantages to moving your single point of failure around until it ends up in a small, very reliable place. The problem comes when someone insists that you eliminate all single points of failure altogether. Something that can be impossible. Insisting that someone do the impossible is a great way to force them to lie to you, or even worse, to start lying to themselves. Now, the way to really make a name for yourself as a safety author is to predict a major future disaster. One of the revenge scenarios that Tenor discusses is flood protection. As you make flood-prone areas safer, you move the boundaries of where people can build. Zoning laws designed to prohibit construction in areas subject to flooding don't apply if the protective barriers supposedly make those areas safe. Residents begin to feel safe. What happens then if the barriers fail? The population inside the affected area is now much larger. They react slower to impending danger. We have many more people to evacuate in less time, and we simply aren't prepared. Tenor particularly points to the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. On 29th of August 2005, 
Hurricane Katrina struck Louisiana near New Orleans. It was one of the largest storms ever to approach the USA coast. As the American Society of Civil Engineers report points out, storms that bad are expected to cause major flooding and damage. That's just what storms do. A large proportion of the destruction was, quote, caused not only by the storm itself, however, but also by the storm's exposure of engineering and engineering-related policy failures. End quote. There are two ways to read this. One is simply that the engineers and policymakers didn't do a good enough job to protect the people of New Orleans. The other, which is implicit in a lot of the material written about Katrina, is that the protection actually made things worse. With the majority of the city at or below sea level, and situated in part of the world where storms are common, New Orleans has always been a priority for flood protection. Collectively, this is known as the Hurricane Protection System. The main strategy was a system of levees and flood walls around the vulnerable parts of the city. In addition, there were, plump, there were pumps and internal drainage projects. The size and strength of the barriers was designed according to a model known as the Standard Project Hurricane. This model was produced in 1959, based on 65 years of hurricane records. It was updated again in 1979, but the older 1959 model was used even for New Orleans projects started after then. Needless to say, both models drastically underestimated the hurricane that actually struck. In fact, they'd been warned about this long before Hurricane Katrina. To make matters worse, the necessary height of the barriers was calculated according to mean sea level. When they were built on land below sea level, they were too small. Over time, this land subsided even further, making the barriers lower still. Hurricane Katrina struck at high tide, and it raised sea level further through a combination of wind action and low pressure. Even though it was only a Category 3 storm when it hit land, the fact that it had previously been a Category 5 contributed to the sheer volume of water racing toward New Orleans. In many places, the earthen levees were overtopped by the water. This then eroded the levees, letting even more water in. The concrete barriers, known as eye walls, were breached even before the water reached the top. There were engineering design errors. Around two-thirds of the flooding was attributed to breaches or completely failed barriers, rather than overtopping. Instead of gradual flooding, walls of water raced through neighbourhoods, sometimes from multiple directions at once. Now, even gradual flooding is a bit of a relative term. The report describes places where the water level rose by a foot every 10 minutes. They described this as slow, steady flooding, which gives some indication of just how bad it was in places where the barriers were breached and they had rapid flooding. It was the sheer rate of flooding that caused most of the deaths, not the presence of water itself. People were cut off before they could evacuate to safe areas. Some people tried to escape upwards from water rising through their houses, only to be trapped in the attics with nowhere to go. Just as a sampling of the casualties, 
six people died from new or previous wounds that got infected travelling through floodwater. One person died in an evacuation bus crash. Thirty people died in a single nursing home that got flooded before they could be pulled out. One lady died when the helicopter cable snapped while she was being lifted by a rooftop. Overall, more than a thousand people died during the flood and its immediate aftermath, most by drowning or being cut off from food, clean water and medical assistance. So why was this a revenge effect, not just a failed attempt at mitigating against a natural hazard? Well, New Orleans is built on the delta of the Mississippi River. The soil is soft sand, silt and clay, which naturally subsides over time. Left to its own devices, the river would replenish the soil with new deposits. But upriver flood controls and the New Orleans levees prevented this from happening. The city is gradually sinking, and one of the major causes is flood protection. Because there was flood protection, the land was used in ways not normally considered appropriate for below sea level. There was heavy industry and major oil refineries. One of the problems during the flood and the cleanup was the volume of dangerous chemicals, including seven major oil spills. There was a lot of densely packed housing, with no public transport means of evacuation, and with a highway system not designed for a mass exodus. All of the pumps to drain the area were built in the belief that they themselves wouldn't be inundated so the demise of part of the protection caused the collapse of the rest. It was the flood protection barriers that drew people and industry inwards with the false promise of protection. The barriers themselves helped the city to sink, and then they failed, letting the water in. Similar to revenge effects, but not strictly matching Edward Tenner's meaning, is the idea of risk displacement. By attempting to suppress one hazard, we create a totally new one. Firefighting seems to attract these problems. Fire retardant materials such as asbestos create health problems for manufacturers and maintainers. Fire suppression systems can kill people as easily as they kill fires. There's the genuine revenge effect of fire extinguishers which can spread a fire if the wrong sort of extinguisher is used. There are fire alarms which get ignored when they sound for real, because people are so used to them being tested. That one's probably a true revenge effect. There are fire alarms that go off at random times when people are performing delicate operations with chemicals or explosives. We've talked before on DisasterCast about the idea of risk compensation. Whilst most safety initiatives do actually make things safer, they never improve things quite as much as you might expect. Mitigations themselves have a chance of failure, new hazards are introduced, and people start behaving differently when they perceive the risk to be different. Revenge effects dial this problem right up to 11. New technology can bring new danger, and safety technology is really no exception. So that's Edward Tenner and revenge effects. Lisanne Bainbridge wrote a paper back in 1983 called the ironies of automation. Even though it's 20 years old, this paper is still absolutely required reading 
for any safety engineer working for a design organisation. The central irony referred to in the title is that the more we try to automate a system, the more critically we rely on human operators. Designers see human users as imperfect and prone to mistakes, so they try to eliminate the role of human users. This approach itself is ironic since many of the problems faced in operations are caused by the designers, but it also leads to more fundamental problems, since all of the tasks that are left are those that the designer couldn't work out how to automate. This approach of automating what can be automated and leaving the rest for the operator results in quite a dangerous set of tasks left for the operator to perform. Since the operator isn't involved in routine process control, they lose manual control skills. As an example, imagine if your car was permanently under cruise control except for rare occasions when you were driving on certain roads. Instead of being used to the exact amount of throttle necessary to keep the speed constant, you would probably oscillate above and below the desired speed, as you used feedback as a form of control. Experienced operators controlled by feedback, inexperienced operators controlled by observation and correction. Now consider what sort of situation the operator will be required to take control. Not on the smooth highway with no traffic. The automation works fine when everything is normal. When you automate a system, the operator only has to take control when things are unusual. Exactly the sort of situations where you want someone experienced with lots of practice. And that's just the manual skills. What about the cognitive problems? In the long term, an operator who is constantly operating develops a good working mental model of the system. It may not be perfectly accurate, but it gets refined and adapted through all sorts of experiences. An operator who supervises instead has a mental model based on the instrumentation they're provided with. It's almost guaranteed not to be complete, and it's based on how the system behaves normally, not on what's actually going on. In the short term, an operator who is operating knows exactly what the system has done recently. They're intimately familiar with the current state of the system because they created it. An operator who's been simply observing doesn't have this knowledge. They may even have been distracted or focused on totally different tasks at the time they have to take control. The end result of all this is that any time an operator is asked to take control of an automated system, it's by definition a situation that the designers didn't take into account. The automation can't cope. It tries its best until the situation is totally beyond its ability, and then it dumps it onto the operator and says, I give up, your turn. The operator at this point hasn't had any practice, and they've probably got no insight into what's actually going on, yet they're the ones expected to handle things. An example of this occurred in 1985 with a Boeing 747 operating as China Air 006. One of the engines lost power, and the pilot was preoccupied with diagnosing and restarting the engine, as well as with the fact that the plane was losing airspeed. Meanwhile, the autopilot was struggling to keep the plane level, 
applying the maximum amount of deflection possible under autopilot. The pilot chose to let the autopilot stay on while he focused on the problem of the engines. Now, even though the plane was only actually banking slightly, the autopilot was applying a large amount of deflection trying to keep the plane level. When the pilots disengaged the autopilot so they could dive to increase airspeed, the plane immediately tipped way over to the right. Neither pilot had any clue what was going on. They were really quite confused just as to which way up the aircraft was. They were diving through cloud, so they had no external references. They couldn't reconcile what they thought the aircraft was probably doing with what the instruments were showing them. And they didn't realise that they needed to keep a large amount of control input just to keep the aircraft from banking further. By the time they did emerge from the cloud, got their bearings and recovered the aircraft, they'd managed to put a Boeing 747 with 250 passengers through a 5G complete 360 degree Aerolon roll. Both of their stabilisers had been ripped to shreds, and 10 feet of the left tail was simply missing completely. The wings had a permanent bend not included in the original 747 design. Passengers were advised to take care when opening the overhead lockers, as their luggage may have shifted in flight. Well, to be precise, the overhead lockers themselves had shifted just a little bit. There were some injuries, but in this case all of the crew and passengers survived. The accident report contains this interesting quote. The automatic flight systems of the Boeing 747SP were such that the airplane could be programmed for, and was capable of, fully automatic flight throughout the entire route. Once the airplane was programmed, all that was required of the flight crew was to monitor the progress of the airplane, and from time to time, update the information required by the airplane's computers. Thus, the flight crew had been relegated to the role of monitors, and had been serving in this role for almost the entire flight until the autopilot was disconnected. As computers have been added, the pilot's physical workload, as far as physically handling the airplane, had been reduced, and during some phases, eliminated. One researcher has stated that with the addition of computers to the cockpit, the pilot's job is changing from one of manually flying the aircraft to one of supervising computers which are doing navigation, guidance and energy management calculations, as well as automatically flying the aircraft. The increased automation has not necessarily reduced pilot workload, however, but has shifted it to monitoring tasks which the pilot formerly had to perform, and there is evidence, both from research and accident statistics, that people make poor monitors. End quote. Despite this, the report blamed the captain for causing the accident. It said he trusted the autopilot too much, and the report actually makes no recommendations. Let's finish on some good news. Despite intensive searching, I haven't found any safety features in current common use that have good evidence that they cause more harm than good. When car passenger airbags were first introduced, there were concerns and they've certainly been responsible for quite a few fatalities, particularly of children. However, there have been many more cases where airbags have certainly reduced the severity, dialing it down from probable death. Back in episode 22 I discussed bicycle helmets, 
concluding that the evidence was strong that they improved safety. Interestingly, bicycle helmet laws possibly fall more into the category of revenge effects, where the public health damage from reduced cycling may in some cases outweigh the safety improvement. Advocates of risk homeostasis suggest that car safety features such as anti-skid braking result in more dangerous driver behaviour, but you have to really cherry-pick the evidence to argue that they do more harm than good overall. The closest thing I could find to a commonly used anti-safety feature was car bull bars, which are no longer in common use for very good reasons. Rigid bull bars make cars much more dangerous for pedestrians and cyclists, but they also compromise the crash safety of the vehicle they're fitted to as well. They make a very good illustration for the point I was making at the beginning of this episode. The body of a modern car is an amazing work of engineering. There are various trade-offs between performance, say aesthetics, and safety, but with a conscious process to balance and optimise these things. Whilst bulking a hulking great chunk of rigid metal to the front might seem like an obvious safety improvement, it interferes with the carefully designed shape, the mechanics of the crumpled zones, the distribution of forces, and the carefully calibrated sensors to activate the airbags and seatbelt pretensioners. Sorry, I promised to finish on good news. The good news is that the, in, in the EU at least, bull bars aren't fitted as standard, and they're banned as an aftermarket accessory. So that's it for another episode of DisasterCast. For more information about all the episodes, including transcripts, check out the webpage at disastercast.co.uk. There you will also find the links to provide comments or feedback, and to the iTunes and Stitcher pages to post reviews. I can't give full credit for all the examples I've used in this episode, but to those who provided them, thank you anyway. Keep safe.